Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, as we seek to peer into the mystery, let us seek not definition, but amen. Our scripture lesson is not only for this sermon, our scripture lesson is really for the entire sermon series, Lift High the Cross. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, listen to what is said in the first chapter, beginning with verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Illustrations are not definitions. I'll illustrate. The negotiation that led to the merger of Disney and Pixar could be described as a tango routine where it sometimes seems like the partners are in tension and at other times it seems like they are in love until the dance is over and both partners take a bow. Does that mean that every merger is to be described as a tango? The Bible is full of illustrations that should not be taken as definitions. The parables of Jesus are prime examples. When Jesus talks about a widow getting justice by continuously banging on the door of the judge in the middle of the night until he finally helps her, are we then to define prayer as nagging? When Jesus tells about a woman throwing a party after finding a lost coin, he is illustrating, I'm sure, on not giving up on sinners, but he certainly isn't establishing a rule about what to do if you find a quarter in the couch. An illustration is not a definition. And yet sometimes illustrations can be so good that they get treated like definitions. 
And this happens with theologians. Every so often, something is said by a theologian that is so compelling, so needed to be heard at the time, so widely embraced, that it's decided by some, hey, from now on, this is the only way that we can talk about this. I would say that that is what happened with the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of reconciliation, the saving work of Jesus. This doctrine is about how our flaws and failings are removed as barriers to our being reconciled to God. It is also about the faith and practice of forgiven Christians who, because of God's grace, Work to reconcile with others so that we can reflect on earth what is in heaven, that we can show others what we have received. It's, it's a gift, we say in that doctrine. It's a gift that comes to us by God's grace, and it has to be a gift because it's not something that we can earn. That it has to be a gift and not something that we can earn is revealed in the revelation that is Jesus Ever since Jesus lived and breathed, ever since he was killed and then was raised, the central talking point for most Christian theologians has been this conviction that God is in Christ, reconciling the world to God's self. That kind of talk is atonement talk. And it's important talk because when we are self-aware, we know that we're not in full control when it comes to virtue and vice, when it comes to right and wrong. I mean, if we could control ourselves, we would have figured this out a long time ago. We would have worked things out a long time ago. We certainly would not have leaders who act like children and have a war going on in Ukraine. Because of an earthquake, we would still have a tragedy in Syria, but the tragedy would not have been compounded because of a preceding civil war, because we would have already beaten our swords into plowshares and given up on our warring ways. We would have already figured out how to lift up and not keep down the poor, and we would have rooted out racism already out of hearts and out of social norms. We would not be telling lies to get away with things or telling truths with the only intent to hurt another. We might spend our days demanding equality, calling for justice, but in the most honest moments of the night, we realize that if God were to live by our demands for equality and calls for justice, we wouldn't stand a chance. It's not in our wheelhouse to make ourselves perfectly acceptable to ourselves, much less to God, if being perfectly acceptable is the only way we can stand before God. However, the graceful possibilities of being human before God, the loving possibilities of being humane with each other, open up to us if it is true that we can know and live by grace. And over the centuries, theologians have sought to witness to this good news of God's grace. And they've come up with illustrations to help us understand. And many of the ways that they have explained this to us have been particularly helpful, were particularly helpful in their day when they were offered. And so the church has remembered them. There was 
that illustration about a ransom being paid. Jesus is the ransom that is paid to free us from the captivity of sin. Basically, Jesus' life for ours. You find this illustration in Colossians and in 1 Corinthians. And though Reformed theologians do not use it often, you can find it in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But freeze-dry this illustration into a solid definition. Then we're saying that there was a literal ransom paid. And to whom? The devil? God? There was that military illustration. The very same epistles of Colossians and 1 Corinthians rolled this one out. It is the one that says that we have been defeated by the devil and we have been taken into captivity, which is death. But by dying and being raised, Jesus invaded the enemy territory to bring us as captives home. Eastern Orthodox theologians have used this one a lot but freeze-dry this illustration into a definition, and it means that reconciliation with God is only possible after we die. There is the sacrifice illustration. This is the one that makes substitutions at an animal sacrifice. Because animal sacrifice is so common in Hebrew scriptures, it makes sense that this illustration would be found often in the New Testament. Sometimes Jesus is presented as a substitute for the lamb. Sometimes Jesus is presented as a substitute for the high priest. This illustration vividly illustrates the moral harm of the wrongs that we do to the world and each other. But when this illustration is made or is freeze-dried into a definition, it requires the acceptance of animal sacrifice in order to accept its replacements. And it's been two millennia since we sacrificed animals in sanctuaries, except in extreme circumstances, like when bees were coming out of the tower at Browwood Presbyterian Church, or that snake appeared out of the wall during the middle of a service at a church in Rockbridge Baths. And there's a legal definition. Paul loves this one. Sin is this crime against God deserving the death penalty. And Jesus takes that sentence upon himself, accepting capital punishment so we can walk free. This illustration vividly portrays Jesus' love for us and the truth that often reconciliation comes at a greater cost to the one who is wronged than the offender. But freeze-dry this illustration into a definition then we might find ourselves justifying the abuse of those who make life easy for the comfortable. I don't think manipulators and oppressors of the world will be stopped if the solution is that their victims suffer the consequences always of their actions. And then there's the big one. Substitutionary atonement, kind of drawing on all the rest of the others. Martin Luther and John Calvin were not the first to articulate this explanation of God's saving work in Jesus, but what they said so perfectly suited their times that substitutionary atonement became the definition that in some Protestant contexts you have to accept or you're in danger of being called a heretic. To understand why this particular way of talking about the cross became so popular, we have to understand what it was like to live in the 16th century. Imagine living there. 
We live in a world that still buys into what Plato said about there being this difference between the corrupted real and the perfect ideal. The medieval church agreed and then got in the habit of saying that only the ideal is acceptable to a perfect God. Sin is repugnant to God and sinners are not acceptable in God's sight. And priests are telling us that only those in a state of perfection are acceptable to God and can make it into heaven. Martin Luther and John Calvin couldn't change the Platonic worldview of the people of Western Europe, mainly because the two of them mostly shared that worldview. But they found a way to talk about the cross so it can be heard again as good news for God's wrath at our sin to be sated. There needs to be a substitute. For there to be God's love only for us, Jesus takes the sin upon himself and he dies so that we might live. And the stench of sin is removed from us and we are made acceptable in God's eyes. This explanation was so compelling in its day and was heard as such good news that it became for Protestants the only way to talk about salvation. It got baked into confessions and became a litmus test to determine who understood the gospel and who did not. There is another Presbyterian denomination represented in this city that demands that you talk about God's saving work in this way if you want to be ordained as a minister or as an elder. Even though we no longer live in the 16th century, I think it's important that we hear, that we understand why this explanation was taken so seriously, why it was so important. Like the others, it takes seriously the moral harm we do to ourselves and others. It takes seriously our propensity to think too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves and how that propensity can get beyond our control. It takes seriously just how in over our heads we are with the ways that we get seduced into systemic problems, family dysfunction, our own immaturity, social pressures, our being brainwashed by ideologies. It takes seriously that justice matters. That such things as ethics and kindness and forgiveness matters because what is good is grounded in the reality of the existence of God who is perfectly good. It takes seriously what Jews and Christians have sensed all their history, that we're loved by the one who created us, and yet also takes seriously the things we do or say or don't do or say that are unacceptable because they create moral harm, moral injury, that's unnecessary in this world, but we can't seem to stop doing. It takes seriously the cost that comes with forgiveness, with healing mortal wounds or moral wounds, and with making right relationships that are broken. But we don't live in the 16th century anymore, and the formulaic aspect of this doctrine has increasingly become for many a barrier and not a help. To freeze-dry this illustration into a definition 
is to make the transaction of child abuse or infanticide a necessary fix to change how God sees us. More and more people so reject this articulation of God's saving work that they reject the doctrine of the atonement itself. They reject the cross as a symbol of the faith. Some even reject the Christian faith. Today's go-to atheists like Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchings, and Neil deGrasse Tyson assume that we all take this doctrine literally and then make fun of it to convince people that the Christian faith is just plain silly. The very idea of God getting so repulsed by and getting so worked up over sin that God can't even think straight until he kills someone seems as preposterous as insisting that only irritating God will get God's attention or that the only way to respond to finding a lost coin is to throw an expensive party. For me, it gets down to this. Make of any illustration of the atonement, any illustration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, any illustration, a definition. And the cross becomes a fix rather than a revelation. The cross becomes a magic trick rather than the revelation of the truth about who we are in God's eyes. I think the cross is a revelation, not a fix. The cross doesn't change reality. The cross reveals reality. It is something that we can turn this way and then we can turn that way in order to better understand how sacrificial love can be the bridge between sinners and God. How sacrificial love can be the means by which we can begin to work out reconciliation between us and in this world. Before the radio station, the mountain ceased to be. We used to run advertisements on it. It just finished just like a month ago. And we had advertisements up until a month ago. And every one of those advertisements ended with this tagline, Second Presbyterian Church, where theology is a conversation not a conclusion. That tagline says, enough with formulas. We need illustrations in conversation. We need to talk, even though talk is always going to be limited. We need words and images, similes and metaphors to communicate things, to talk of the reality of our sin and God's love and reconciliation requires finding some way to express it that makes sense right now. But they cannot become formulas that we have to memorize in order to be saved. During Lent, we preaching pastors are going to offer a sermon series on the cross. The entire series is going to be based on our passage, like I said, where Paul speaks of the crucifixion of the revelation of the truth about God, a revelation that is a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, but which speaks to a God who loves us and hates moral harm, a God who has the power to rescue us from our worst selves, 
and reconcile in this life and in the life to come what must be healed if all will be made well. And liberated from the need to defend formulas, we're going to look at the cross from all kinds of different directions, personally, historically, as a revelation of sin that needs forgiveness, as a revelation of love that needs to be shared. We will explore why the Gospels and why Paul found the crucifixion to be such a critical clue as to the essential truth about the good news of reconciliation being God's gift of grace, a gift that even helps us work out the issues we have among us. Join us in the coming Sundays as we lift the cross as a symbol of hope in our world. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.